Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one. Tonight on Drama on One, the celebration continues. James Joyce's Ulysses was published in Paris on February the 2nd, 1922. And to mark the centenary, the Drama on One website now features the James Joyce collection, including the 1982 RTE complete recording of Ulysses, Fritz Sen and Jerry O'Flaherty's blooming brilliant beginner's guide to the book Reading Ulysses, the RTE player's 1980 production of Joyce's only extant play Exiles, all 15 stories from Dubliners, with explainers and analysis by Michael West, Annie Ryan and Patrick Dawson, as well as Stephen Ray's reading of The Dead. All of these can be enjoyed at rte.ie forward slash drama on one, as well as tonight's play, The United States vs. Ulysses by Colin Murphy, directed by Connell Morrison, with original music by Cy Schroeder. The drama revisits a key episode in the book's publication history, and just a note that the play contains explicit language and adult themes from the start. With Killian Scott, Stephen Hogan, Janet Moran, Helen Norton, Jonathan White and Morgan C. Jones. This is the United States versus Ulysses. In the 1930s, every Friday evening at the studios of CBS Radio in New York City, a company of actors reenacted the News of the Week live for the programme The March of Time. In December 1933, they reenacted the famous case of the United States versus one book called Ulysses. But that march of time recording is now lost in the mists of time. So what follows is a reimagining of that reenactment. And now on CBS. Your weekly news serial, The March of Time. The March of Time! Tonight, on The March of Time, we bring you The Trial of Ulysses, the true crime courtroom drama in which the world's most notorious book, accused of obscenity, fought for its life in a New York court. Here's the judge, stately, plump John Woolsey, as he begins his verdict. Joyce takes persons of the lower middle class living in Dublin in 1904. Shish and onions, that'll do, Ned. Life is too short. Poldy. For this so dearly beloved is the genuine Christine. And seeks not only to describe what they did on a certain day in June of that year. I felt lovely and tired myself and fell asleep as sound as a top. Slow music, Going round the corner. Shut your eyes. You don't want anything for breakfast? As they went about the city bent on their usual occupations but also to tell what many of them thought about the while. I think he made them a bit firmer, sucking them like that. trouble about those white corpuscles. Woman's breasts full in her blouse of nuns veiling. Silence all. But wait. Before we learn what fate awaits, Ulysses, we need to understand the perilous journey that has led it to this point. So travel back with us to February 1921. It is the era of prohibition, and James Joyce's novel, not yet published in full, has been serialized by The Little Review, a literary magazine published by Margaret Anderson and Jane Heap. This is the most beautiful thing we'll ever have. We'll print it if it's the last effort of our lives. One episode, known as Nausicaa, is set during a fireworks display on Sandy Mount Strand. And then a rocket sprang. Young Gertie McDowell is gazing at the fireworks. And bang, shot blind blank. And the novel's hero, Leopold Bloom, is gazing at Gertie. All kinds of crazy longings. As she gets excited by the fireworks. And oh! So... (laughs) Does he? Oh. Then the rum 
Roman candle bourse. And this scene so scandalizes the good citizens of the New York Society for the suppression of vice. And it was like a sigh. That they bring the publishers to court oh. on obscenity charges. And everyone cried. Oh. The publishers are duly convicted. Oh, in raptures. Fined $50 each. And it gushed out of us. And fingerprinted. A stream of rain gold hair threads. A victory for the Vice Society. Oh, so lovely. Oh, soft. Sweet, soft. And a blow for Joyce and his pioneering novel. Mr. Bloom recomposed his wet shirt. Oh, Lord, that little limping devil. The verdict has a chilling effect on the books industry and on freedom of expression itself. Begins to feel cold and clammy. Soiled as Bloom's wet shirt, no legitimate American publisher will touch Ulysses for a decade. After effect, not pleasant. Still, you have to get rid of it some way. In the meantime, Ulysses is published in Paris, and in 1928, it again runs afoul of the American authorities. This time in the Customs Service... Well, don't you know? ...of the state of Minnesota. Your hunch was right about this shipment, Bob. What you got, bootleg liquor? Even better, dirty books. Holy buckets, Tom. We don't want to be getting in any trouble with the Faculty of Medicine for seizing their darn textbooks again. But this one don't sound like no textbook to me, Bob. The strangest voluptuousness. You're darned, Hooten. Better seize it. What else you got? The Vice of Women. Oh, for Pete's sake. Seize it. This one looks a bit different. Ulysses. Ulysses? Don't know it. It says it's published in Paris. Texas? France. Better seize it. The seized books duly come before... U.S. Customs Court, State of Minnesota, Judge Fisher presiding. This court is now in session. If it could be argued that books abounding in obscenity, filth, and rottenness are books of merit and literary value, then this book, Ulysses, by a James Joyce, is a masterpiece. So Ulysses has twice been found guilty of obscenity by American courts, making it virtually unpublishable. But this is just the kind of challenge relished by Bennett Cerf, the 34-year-old founder of publisher Random House. In 1932, he travels to Paris to meet with Mr. Joyce. Mr. Joyce, I sincerely believe you are long overdue the acclaim that would result from publishing Ulysses in America. I'm long overdue the income. Well, on that very point, we would like to offer you a signing fee of $1,500. Tell me, Mr. Surf, a hundred years or so from now, what would that be worth? Inflation, average of 10%, uh, well, perhaps uh, $26,000, Mr. Joyce. But why do you ask? Well, I often wonder how the future will value me. To publish Ulysses without risking jail and his business, Bennett Cerf will need a top attorney. There is only one man for the job, Morris Ernst of Greenbaum, Wolf and Ernst, a man who put himself through law school selling shirts and furniture in Brooklyn and has climbed to become the country's leading free speech lawyer. He meets Bennett Cerf for lunch. Mr. Ernst, my company is young. I'm afraid I haven't got the money to pay your fancy price. Well, of course, it's the principle of free speech I'm interested in. Oh. But defending free speech is an expensive business. If we win, I could give you a royalty on Ulysses. A royalty, you're saying? I was thinking perhaps two... Five percent? Well, on, on the first edition. And book club sales. And on reprints, I think one... Two percent? <clears throat> Indeed. Good. And, of course, I'll need a modest per diem. Of course. So Morris Ernst takes on the case, but here's where it gets complicated. If Random House prints an edition of Ulysses and has it confiscated, they could lose a fortune. Instead, Morris Ernst arranges for a single copy of Ulysses to be brought into the United States. Because Ulysses has previously been found to be obscene, customs will have to seize it, and Ernst will then fight that case to win Ulysses' freedom. What could possibly go wrong? Ernst writes to customs to tip them off. 
to Collector of Customs, New York City. A copy of Ulysses is due at the Port of New York aboard the SS Bremen on Tuesday, May 3rd, 1932. Addressed to our client, Random House. We do not wish the book to slip through customs without official scrutiny. Yours, Greenbaum, Wolf, and Ernst. But Morris Ernst's agent proves too good a smuggler. Anything to declare? Anything? He walks straight through customs and delivers the book directly to Random House. Morris Ernst has to take matters into his own hands. Excuse me. Uh, excuse me, is this uh, customs? I need to hand something in. You don't look like much of a bootlegger, sir. Oh, wait till you see what I've got. Oh, so you're a booklegger. <laughs> Not just any book, the most dangerous book. That's the third copy of Ulysses this week, sir. We pay it no mind. Now, I'm afraid... Officer, I insist that you seize this book. Sir, it's really not worth the paperwork for just one book. Why don't you just bring it home and read it to your wife? Read it? Of course! Let's just read it, hmm? This is one of my favorite bits. Molly Bloom, see, is in bed, recalling her afternoons. (laughs) Well, you'll get the picture... All the pleasures pleasures those those men men get out of a woman. Sir? That's Molly. She's having, how shall I put it, carnal thoughts. I I wish wish he was here here or somebody somebody to to let let myself go with and come again like that. Sir, what are you doing? Or if I could dream it when he made me spend the second time tickling me behind with his finger. Sir, I'm afraid I'll have to call the police. I'll just tell them I was reading from this book that you say you pay no mind. I unbuttoned him and and took his his out and pulled back. Sir, I'm getting the power vested in me by the Tariff Act, Section 305, prohibiting the importation of any obscene book. I am seizing this one book called Ulysses for referral to the District Attorney of New York, who shall institute proceedings for the forfeiture, confiscation, and destruction of said book. At last. Now, get the hell out of here. With pleasure, officer. It takes over a year for Ulysses to come to court. And so we pass to Saturday, November 25th, 1933. Our events henceforth take place on the sixth floor of the New York City Bar Association building on West 44th Street. Judge John Monroe Woolsey, a 56-year-old gentleman of impeccable wasp lineage, draws on a cigar as he looks over a well-thumbed copy of Ulysses awaiting the start of the case. Hmm. All ready, Your Honor. This should be fun, George. Fun, Your Honor? Nobody's been murdered. No grieving widow or orphaned children. Nobody's going to jail. A whole day debating a book. Sounds a little dull, if you ask me, Your Honor. Not this book, George. Now let your mind's eye linger for a moment on the small, overheated oval courtroom that Judge Woolsey has chosen for this case. It is unusually crowded and stuffy on this Saturday morning, but between the bodies you can see the polished hardwoods of the room's fine 18th century furnishings, a style of furniture of which Judge Woolsey is himself an astute collector. Sitting nervously at the front are publisher Bennett Cerf and his lawyer, Morris Ernst. Well, Mr. Ernst, we are going to win, aren't we? See that mild-mannered fellow there, Mr. Cerf? The prosecutor. That's Sam Coleman, my opposite number. All he has to do to win this case is to read aloud from the book in open court, in front of the press. The judge would have to stop him, case closed. So your strategy is to stop him reading from the book. But if Coleman persuades the judge that the book is so obscene, it can't be read aloud in court. The case is also over. Well, so your strategy is to make him read from it? I may just have to read from it myself. Is that wise? Pro captu lectoris habent sua fata libelli. What the hell does that mean? Books have their fate according to the capacity of the reader, Mr. Cerf. This case isn't about the book. It's about us, the readers. And here comes the most important reader. United States District Court, Southern District of New York. 
The United States of America versus one book called Ulysses. The Honorable John Monroe Woolsey presiding. All right. Good morning, gentlemen. Oh, and uh, lady, I hope this won't be too distressing for you, ma'am. This is, by agreement, an informal session of the court. Neither side has relished the thought of spending long, expensive weeks reading Ulysses aloud to a jury. By agreement between them, the case will be decided by Judge Woolsey alone. You may remove your jackets and by all means smoke, if that helps keep you fresh. Chief Assistant U.S. Attorney Sam Coleman, bright, earnest, and one of the youngest prosecutors in his office, opens his case. I would ask the court not to think of me personally as a puritanical censor. My people came over with the early pilgrims, Mr. Coleman. I hope you're not using Puritan as a derogatory term. Of course not, Your Honor. My point is merely to acknowledge the accomplishment of Mr. Joyce in Ulysses. There is much to commend in this novel, but there is also much that is obscene, remarkably obscene. Now, the government is a supporter of literature. I'm very glad to hear that, Mr. Coleman. But the government has a duty to protect the public from ideas and language that might offend or corrupt them. I suspect you might be thinking of the episode featuring Molly Bloom, Mr. Coleman. Shall we get to it? Yes. This is just what Morris Ernst doesn't want. He needs to avoid getting tangled up in the particulars of whether or not Ulysses is obscene. Your Honor, I move to have the case dismissed. To this end, he has devised a cunning strategy. On what ground? On the grounds that the United States government has officially deemed Ulysses to be a classic. It cannot therefore be deemed obscene. Your Honor, this is a ruse by the defense. It is no ruse. It is, in fact, the opinion of the Secretary of the Treasury. The Secretary of the Treasury has the power to exempt books considered classics from the prohibition on importing obscene materials. So Morris Ernst had a second copy of Ulysses brought into the United States, let it be seized by customs, and then appeal that to the Treasury Secretary, arguing that Ulysses, though just ten years old, was a classic. And I take it the Secretary agreed. Authority is given for the release of the book Ulysses by James Joyce on the grounds that it is a classic and therefore comes within the purview of the Secretary of the Treasury's discretionary authority granted in Section 305, etc., etc. The United States government, via the Treasury Secretary, has found Ulysses to be a classic. To be a classic is to enrich the culture. To be obscene is to demean it. The same book cannot do both. Therefore, the government has already found Ulysses to not be obscene. I move to have the case dismissed. I think you'll find this exemption is designed for book collectors, Your Honor, not for publishers who wish to profit from obscenity. A precedent has been set, Your Honor. You'll admit, Mr. Ernst, it is a little ironic in a case about free speech to attempt to shut down the argument before it really gets started. I'm not prepared to defer to some accountant in the Treasury Department as to whether Ulysses should be read or not by the American public. Let's proceed to the particulars of the alleged obscenity. Yes. So Morris Ernst's first ploy has failed. Before we do, Your Honor... But he has another stratagem up his well-tailored sleeve. It is not just the Secretary of the Treasury who deems Ulysses a classic, Your Honor. The distinguished English scholar Stuart Gilbert wrote of Ulysses that it is, and I quote... Objection, Your Honor. Mr. Coleman, it is long established that expert opinion is not held to be relevant in an obscenity case. All that matters is the work itself. A work I am keen to get to. Gentlemen. Yes. As before, Ernst's ploy is based on his unrivaled experience of the nuances of obscenity law. Your Honor, on trial here today is not simply the novel Ulysses is written by James Joyce. It isn't. On trial is this copy of Ulysses, the one seized by U.S. Customs. This is another of the defense's stunts. You're losing me, Mr. Ernst. Published by Shakespeare and Company in Paris in a simple blue paper cover. We're familiar with the book. 
book, Mr. Ernst. Not the book, this book. This particular copy, which contains, as you no doubt have noticed, a number of additional papers stuck between its pages. This is all a distraction, Under Your Honor. Under U.S. law, the item deemed obscene, the item on trial today, is the physical book seized by customs. In this case, the physical book contains a collection of cuttings and photostats comprising critical opinion on Ulysses. In the view of the law, these are part of the material being prosecuted. Thus, what they say is of utmost relevance to the question of whether this item is obscene. An elegant argument, Mr. Ernst, if rather appropriately, I may say, it is somewhat Jesuitical. Proceed. Morris Ernst duly produces his expert opinion. The distinguished English scholar, Stuart Gilbert. Ulysses demonstrates power beyond the scope of any but the greatest. But for every validation, Sam Coleman has an equal and opposite reaction. The revered English author, Arnold Bennett. Ulysses is more indecent, obscene, scatological, and licentious than the majority of professedly pornographical books. The lawyers trade critical opinion like prize fighters trading blows. The esteemed critic, Rebecca West. Joyce is a writer of majestic genius. The acclaimed novelist, Virginia Woolf. I have been puzzled, bored, irritated, and disillusioned by a queasy undergraduate scratching his pimples. Gentlemen, we have established that intellectuals disagree on Ulysses. That, after all, is the function of intellectuals. It is not just intellectuals that champion Ulysses, Your Honor, but our most cherished institutions. The Library of Congress has the original English edition of Ulysses. The New York Public Library has more than 30 items dealing with James Joyce or Ulysses. Copies of Ulysses are so commonplace in this country that T.S. Eliot could include it as required reading for his course on modern literature at Harvard. I'm quite sure his course is very popular. Perhaps now we might get to the material which is no doubt of most interest to Mr. T.S. Eliot's students. Yes. Your Honor, to spare the court's blushes, so to speak, we have submitted a marked copy of Ulysses to the court, highlighting all of the troubling passages. Most helpful, Mr. Coleman. Indeed, Your Honor, it could be. Mr. Ernst? Your Honor, Ulysses has 732 closely printed pages. The first passage dealing with sex... Wildly I lay on her. According to the government's guide... Kissed her eyes, her lips, occurs on page 175. Ulysses is far too tedious and labyrinthine and bewildering for the untutored and the impressionable who might conceivably be affected by it. Fat nipples, upright. Such people would not get beyond the first dozen pages. Hot, I toned her. In fact... The only way the general public is going to find obscenity in Ulysses is if they have this guide helpfully assembled by the government. No doubt we're all grateful for their public service. But I fear finding obscenity in Ulysses is not as complex as you suggest, Mr. Ernst. Now, let us look at some of the offending passages marked by Mr. Coleman. Yes. Morris Ernst tries to deflect once again. Your Honor... I think it more urgent to address the issue of literary style. This is not one of Mr. T.S. Eliot's seminars on modern literature at Harvard. The question of obscenity in Ulysses is inextricable from the question of literary innovation. To read Ulysses, the reader must be able to fathom paragraphs such as this. Ineluctable modality of the visible. At least that, if no more, thought through my eyes. Well, I'll admit that did escape me. Open Ulysses at random almost anywhere, and you will confront passages meaningless on the surface, decipherable only after concentrated study. Words such as theological-philological. Nonsense. Or contransmagnificant jubantantiality. Indeed. Four-letter words, however, can be understood by anyone, and Ulysses is full of them. Morris Ernst is determined to keep the argument away from those four-letter words. Ulysses mimics the structure of the Odyssey by Homer. 
Each episode in Ulysses has a title corresponding to a character or episode in the Odyssey. Each episode has its own scene and hour of the day. Each is associated with a particular organ of the human body. Each embodies a certain art and has its own symbol, color, and technique. The Mabbot Street entrance of Night Town, before which stretches an uncobbled tram site. The Circe episode, for example. Rows of grimy houses with gaping doors. It is named after the Greek sorceress whom Odysseus visited on her island. ice gondola, stunted men and women squabble. It is set in a brothel. This isn't a brothel, a Ted Schilling house. Its hour is midnight. Rags and bones at midnight. Its organ is the locomotor apparatus. Are you going far, queer fella? How's your middle leg? Its art is magic. Bloom assumes a mantle of cloth of gold. He ascends. And its and technique is hallucination. Kidney of Bloom, pray for us. Flower of the body. Your point, Mr. Ernst. Your Honor, to understand Ulysses, you need a good modern history of Ireland, a guide to Dublin, a history of the Irish literary renaissance, a copy of the Roman Missal, dictionaries of Latin, Hebrew, Greek, French, Italian, Spanish, Gaelic, and English, handbooks of astronomy, astrology, theosophy, psychology, and a decent familiarity with Shakespeare. This is all a diversion, Your Honor. Mr. Joyce's mastery of style is not contested by the government, but what is at issue here is the book's obscenity. Obscene thoughts, scenes, words. The worst Chinese obscenity is innocuous to anyone not acquainted with the language. If the author's style is incomprehensible to all but a select few, the work can hardly be said to be obscene. You know, Mr. Ernst, I can't remember the number of times I've heard people say they can't understand Ulysses. So when I started reading it, I have to admit I was rather shocked to find I understood all the passages marked by Mr. Coleman as obscene. Yes. But before we all pass out in here, I think we could all do with some air. We'll adjourn till 2 p.m., gentlemen. Thank you, Your Honor. The courtroom empties out. But Morris Ernst remains. Buy your lunch, Mr. Ernst? Uh, thank you, Mr. Surf. Um, no. I want to just sit here and think. As long as Ulysses is seen as a litany of obscenities, Ernst's case will fail. He needs the judge to see the book for its essence. Ernst has hardly slept. He has worked late into the night for weeks, combing Ulysses for inspiration. Fragments flash before him. The king versus Bloom. If only Ulysses could speak for itself, he thinks. If the accused could speak, he could a tale unfold. One of the strangest that have ever been narrated between the covers of a book. The novel's voices echo in his head. The court of conscience is now open. His eyes grow heavy. If only... If only he could call Leopold Bloom as a witness, he thinks. Order! Order in my court! The courtroom is hot. If only... Your Honor, I call Mr. Leopold Bloom. <gasps> Gentlemen of the jury, let me explain. I am a man misunderstood. A respectable married man without a stain on my character. I follow a literary occupation, author. In fact, we are just bringing out a collection of prize stories of which I am the inventor, something that is an entirely new departure. Thank you, Mr. Bloom. And appearing for the prosecution? Bella Cowan, Your Honor. I call Mr. Philip O'Foy. Bloom is a plagiarist, a soapy sneak masquerading as a literateur. He has cribbed some of my best-selling copy. I am being made a scapegoat oh, of. Why look at the man's private life. Street angel and house devil. I called a woman Driscoll. Miss Driscoll, are you of the unfortunate class? I'm not a bad one. I was four months in my last place. I had to leave owing to his carrying on. What do you tax him with? He surprised me in the rear of the premises when the missus was out, Your Honor. 
I was discoloured in four places as a result. Mike Lyant would be the last man in the world to do anything ungentlemanly, Your Honour. I call Mrs. Yelverton Burry. He made improper overtures to me to misconduct myself at half past four on the following Thursday, Dunsink time. I call Mrs. Bavintalbys. <laughs> he implored me to bestride and ride him, to give him a most vicious horse whipping. <laughs> Turn his breech well. The up. There. Write the stars and stripes on it. By Hades, I will not have any client of mine gagged and badgered in this fashion by a pack of cores and lapping hyenas. <laughs> this is midsummer madness. Some ghastly joke again. Hold your tongue, Bluem. Speak when you're spoken to. By heaven, I am guiltless. <laughs> Mother Grogan throws her boot at Bloom. Several shopkeepers from Upper and Lower Dorset Street throw objects of little or no commercial value. Ham bones, condensed milk tins, unsaleable cabbage, stale bread, sheep's tails, odd pieces of fat. Lynchum! Roast him! He's as big as Order in the court! Order in the court! Whereas Leopold Bloom of no fixed abode is a well-known dynamitard forger, bigamist, bawd and cuckold. Let him be taken from the dock where he now stands and detained in custody in Mountjoy prison and there be hanged by the neck until he is dead. Until he is dead. Morris Ernst rouses himself as the court returns. The stakes are clear now. Ernst is near the end of his rope. Mr. Ernst, we have discussed Ulysses' status, its style, its structure, its sources. I have one day scheduled for this case. We need to discuss the obscenities. Your Honor, what is the standard of proof required in this case? I'd have thought it was a little late in the day for introducing such fundamental questions. What does the government say, Mr. Coleman? I fear another of Mr. Ernst's digressions, Your Honor. This is a civil case under the Tariff Act. The court can find on the balance of probabilities. With respect, Your Honor, this case is not the United States versus the author, James Joyce. It is not the United States versus the publisher, Random House. It is the United States versus one book called Ulysses. Ulysses itself is the defendant. And if Ulysses loses, it will be hanged by the neck until it is dead. It will be destroyed and all the ideas it contains. This is in effect a capital case, Your Honor. Ulysses is on trial for its life. As in a murder trial, any verdict should be beyond a reasonable doubt. Mr. Ernst, I am under no illusion as to the stakes at hand, but the standard of proof required is irrelevant if we cannot get to the proof itself. Morris Ernst can feel his grip on the case, his grip on freedom of speech itself slipping. He realizes he can no longer avoid those four-letter words. We have the government's itemization of the alleged obscenities. What do you have to say, Mr. Ernst? Fuck. Mr. Ernst? I'm sorry, Your Honor, may I go to the toilet? Not before you explain your outburst just now, Mr. Ernst. Would it make any difference if I asked to go to the bathroom? Mr. Ernst! Or to the water closet, or to the WC, I'll or hold you to in the contempt. gentleman's room, uh, or the John, or, or the can, or to Potter Minogue. More theatrics, Your Honor. Or, or the modern style. Uh, do you mind if I step outside to make a call? You are trying my patience, Mr. Ernst. Tastes change, Your Honor. If a concept is deemed dirty, the word to describe it will be tainted and man will find a new combination of letters to describe it until that word becomes tainted and on and on. But underneath those words is the stuff of life. 
Life which is sometimes, well, dirty. Your outburst, Mr. Ernst. Fuck, Your Honor. Where does it come from? Hmm? Possibly from the Anglo-Saxon and agricultural usage, meaning to plant. The farmer fucked the seed into the soil. The word has integrity. More integrity than the phrase of cowardice and circumlocution that is used to describe precisely the same event in every other modern novel. Which is? They slept together, Your Honor. Hmm. And that isn't even usually the truth. What Mr. Coleman calls obscenity, Your Honor, I call honesty. But it is not just four-letter words that the prosecution has so diligently underlined in its copy of Ulysses. I remain much worried about the episode at the end of the book, Mr. Ernst. The so-called soliloquy of Molly Bloom. Yes. This case is not about Molly Bloom, Your Honor. This case is all about Molly Bloom. This case is about our freedom as readers to encounter ideas, thoughts, forms of expression that are new to us. Your Honor, I do not want to encounter somebody with a Tommy gun, even if that experience might be new to me. It is the responsibility of the state to protect the public from harm. From physical harm. Harmful ideas can be as damaging. How are we to test the ideas we consider worthy except by encounter with those we dislike? Mr. Ernst speaks for the writers and intellectuals who get such pleasure from provocation, Your Honor. The select few, he called them. But the government has to think of the more vulnerable of our citizens who may well be influenced by the licentious behavior that this book promotes. You must have come three or four times. This is paternalism at its worst, Your Honor. Tremendous big red brute of a thing he has. Be that as it may, Mr. Ernst, the court is concerned about this episode. Morris Ernst can no longer keep Molly Bloom at bay. The episode is known as Penelope, Your Honor, a reference to the Odyssey. Penelope has waited faithfully for 20 years for her husband's return from the Trojan War. Molly Bloom, on the other hand, has spent her day having extramarital sex. Let us not get deflected again by Mr. Ernst's literary tangents. I thought the vein or whatever the dickens they call it was going to burst. Molly's soliloquy represents the vagaries of consciousness, Your Honor. Still, he hasn't such a tremendous amount of spunk in him, considering how big it is. But do we want our more impressionable young citizens to encounter that consciousness, Mr. Ernst? Yes. Suppose that a girl of 18 picks up Ulysses. What will she read? When he made me spend the second time tickling me behind with his finger. What might she learn? Oh, I was coming for about five minutes with my legs around him. I don't think that is the standard we should go by, Your Honor. Oh, Lord. It is the standard set by precedent. I wanted to shout out all sorts of things. The law does not require that adult literature be reduced to mush for infants. Fuck or shit or anything at all. The law requires this court to protect the vulnerable from being corrupted. I'll tighten my bottom well. It is destroying books that will corrupt us, not reading them. Let out a few smiles. Mushy words. Joyce brings forth those things which we dare not even say to ourselves. Mal or lick my shit. He invades the secret places of the imagination. Oh, the first mad thing comes into my mind. He casts light into the murky chambers of the human mind. He can stick his tongue seven miles up my hole. It is only by such exposure that we can hope to banish darkness and taint. That is what disturbs me, gentlemen. What else were we given all those desires for, I'd like to know? This soliloquy. It didn't make me blush. Why should it either? It may well represent the moods of a woman of that sort. It's only nature. I seem to understand it. It's well for men, all the amount of pleasure they get off a woman's body. I'll confess, this book leaves me bothered, stirred, and troubled. That is exactly the effect of Ulysses, Your Honor. You haven't used the adjectives shocked or revolted. If that passes for a legal argument, Your Honor, I think Mr. Ernst is clutching at straws. Morris Ernst has no more legal arguments. All that is left is his own experience, not as a lawyer, but as a reader. Mr. Ernst, have you actually read Ulysses? Oh, I'll admit, Your Honor, I struggled with it. I was trying to read it on Nantucket this summer. Ah, I was on Long Island. And I was in a basement office in the New York County Courthouse. 
I'm not certain what Mr. Ernst's vacation has to do with this, Your Honor. Perhaps if Mr. Coleman got out of town a little more, his intellectual horizons would be a little broader. Let's not add to the heat in this courtroom unduly, Mr. Ernst. You were on Nantucket? Mm-hmm, and I was invited to give a talk to the Unitarian Church. On Ulysses? On banking. Friends, we're privileged to be addressed today by one of the foremost advocates at the New York Bar. I'm afraid you've lost me, Mr. Ernst. Well, I addressed about 400 people. Thank you. I was fully intent on what I was saying. It was complex stuff. The main aim of the Glass-Eagle Act is... And still, when I finished, I realized that while I was talking about banking, I was also thinking at the same time about the long windows on the walls, the clock at the back, the painted dome above, the old gray woman in the front row, the baby in the rear, and a myriad of items unrelated to banks or even to my conscious mind. I returned to my reading of Ulysses with a new appreciation of what Joyce does in Ulysses. Which is? He puts the stream of consciousness into words. More literary non sequiturs. Please proceed, Mr. Ernst. Now in court, Your Honor, while I thought I was thinking only about Joyce and Ulysses and free speech, I must confess that I have also been thinking, if that's even the word for it, about the gold ring around your tie, how your gown is slipping off your left shoulder. And these unbidden thoughts then summoned images long forgotten of my days measuring customers for shirts as a salesman in Brooklyn and other stranger images. I fear my advocacy today may have been the lesser for my distractedness, Your Honor. <laughs> I confess, Mr. Ernst, that while listening to you, I have also been thinking about the particularly fine Hepplewhite chair behind you. Very interesting individual. Pepplewhite. Around the time of Chippendale, wasn't he, Your Honor? You know, his fame stems from his book on cabinet-making and upholstery. But, of course, he had been dead two years by the time it was published. Of course. But we digress. The stream of consciousness. Yes, indeed. Judge, that is Ulysses. It records the doubts and fears, the joys and torments the swirling consciousness of Leopold and Molly Bloom and those around them. Sex is there, of course, but sex is part of our existence. We can no more say that Ulysses is obscene than that life or thought is obscene. And so the trial of Ulysses draws to a close. All right. Judge John Monroe Woolsey takes two weeks to reflect, to read, to write. On December 6, 1933, the day after the repeal of Prohibition, he delivers his verdict. <coughs> In Ulysses, Mr. Joyce has attempted to show how the screen of consciousness carries not only each man's observation of the actual things about him, but also residua of past impressions, drawn up by association from the domain of the subconscious. That we live after death, our souls, that a man's soul... I used to go died. to Father Corrigan. He touched soul. me, Father, and what harm if he did? And I always think of the real Father... Joyce's attempts to realise his objective has led at times to what many think is a too poignant preoccupation with sex in the thoughts of his characters. Hot little devil, all the same. All kinds the of The last time you came on my bosom, when... The words which are criticised as dirty are old Saxon words known to almost all men... Fuckers bleeding, blasted, fucking women. And I venture too many women. Fuck or shit or anything at all. And are such words as would be naturally and habitually used by the types of folk whose life Joyce is seeking to describe. The course of a good for nothing god lights sideways on the bloody tick lugged sons of whores gets. In respect of the recurrent emergence of the theme of sex in the minds of his characters, it must always be remembered 
that his locale was Celtic. Pulafuka, Pulafuka, Pulafuka. And his season, spring. I'm always like that in the spring. The flowers that bloom in the spring. Accordingly, I hold that Ulysses is a sincere and honest book. It is not an easy book to read. An infinity, renderable equally finite by the... It is brilliant and dull, intelligible and obscure by turns. In many places, it seems to me to be disgusting. A standing woman bent forward, her feet apart, pisses cowardly. But although it contains many words usually considered dirty... I have not found anything that I consider to be dirt for dirt's sake. Oh, Lord, couldn't he say bottom right out? If one does not wish to associate with such folk as Joyce describes, that is one's own choice. You are a poor old stick in the mud. In order to avoid indirect contact with them, one may not wish to read Ulysses. Go and see life, see the wide world. But when such a real artist in words seeks to draw a true picture of the lower middle class in a European city, ought it to be impossible for the American public, legally, to see that picture? Let us have a bit of fun first. The meaning of the word obscene, as legally defined by the courts, is tending to stir the sex impulses or to lead to sexually impure and lustful thoughts. I gave him all the pleasure I could, leading him on till he asked me to say yes. Whether a particular book would tend to excite such impulses must be tested by the court's opinion as to its effect on a person with average sex instincts, what the French would call l'homme moyenne sensuel. Well, as well, him's another. I checked my impressions with two friends of mine who answered to the above-stated requirement. They both agreed that reading Ulysses in its entirety, as a book must be read on such a test as this, did not tend to excite sexual impulses or lustful thoughts, but that its net effect on them was only that of a somewhat tragic and very powerful commentary on the inner lives of men and women. He would be eleven now if he had lived. Our first death, too, it was. We were never the same since. It is only with the normal person that the law is concerned. I am quite aware that owing to some of its scenes... A good eye for later, that to make his mickey stand for him. Ulysses is a rather strong draught. Better for him to put it into me from behind like the dogs do it. To ask some sensitive, though normal, persons to take. But in Ulysses, in spite of its unusual frankness... I do not detect anywhere the leer of the sensualist. And then he asked me, would I yes, to say yes, my mouth... Whilst in many places the effect of Ulysses on the reader undoubtedly is somewhat emetic. My arms around him, yes. Nowhere does it tend to be an aphrodisiac. And drew him down to me so he could feel my breasts all perfume. Ulysses may, therefore... Heart was going like mad, and yes. Be admitted into the United States. Yes, I will. Yes. My beloved subjects, a new era is about to dawn. Yea, on the ward of a bloom, ye shall ere long enter into the golden city, which is to be the new Blue Muslim in the Nova Hibernia of the future. Well, congratulations, Mars. Oh, we didn't win or lose, you and I, Sam. The book spoke for itself. I wonder. <laughs> Let me ask you something, Sam. I don't understand why you didn't just read from the book, all the dirty bits. Why, because there was a lady in the courtroom, Mars. It would have been difficult enough to read those words in front of the judge. I couldn't do it in front of her, whoever she was. (laughs) Oh, Sam, I don't think you've met Mrs. Ernst. Margaret, please, Mr. Coleman. Uh, Mrs. Margaret, please call me Sam. I want to thank you, Sam, for your concern for my welfare, but there was really no need. I used to be a newspaper gal. I've heard a lot worse than Molly Bloom. Yes. Well, Sam, 
We may now imbibe freely of the contents of bottles and forthright books. And I think I owe you a drink. That sounds fine to me, Mars. <laughs> now, Sam, this little event... Meanwhile, the victorious certain... publisher, Bennett Cerf, has stepped outside to make a call. Henson Critters! Can you hear me? We won! You'll have to shout! This is Cerf. Bennett Cerf. Mr. Cerf, any word from the court? We won! Can we roll the presses? You'll need to leave space for four extra pages. Is Mr. Joyce still writing? No, no, I'm going to include the judgment. It'll work like an introduction. It'll be the most read judgment in history. I can do that, Mr. Surf. We'll get started in the meantime. Roll the presses! Within six months, the Random House edition of Ulysses will sell 35,000 copies. Random House will include the Woolsey verdict in its edition of the novel for the next 50 years. We leave the last word, of course, to Mr. James Joyce, observing events from exile in Paris with his wife, Nora. Ulysses may, therefore, be admitted into the United States. That's it, Jim. Thus, one half of the English-speaking world surrenders. The rest will follow. Even Ireland. <laughs> In about a thousand years. Time matches on! That was The United States versus Ulysses by Colin Murphy, directed by Connell Morrison, with original music by Cy Schroeder. Janet Moran played Molly Bloom. Jonathan White played the voice of Time and Leopold Bloom. Stephen Hogan played Morris Ernst. Killian Scott played Sam Coleman and Bennett Cerf. Morgan C. Jones played Judge John Monroe Woolsey. Helen Norton played the voice of Ulysses and Mrs. Yelverton Barry. Multiple additional roles were played by the company. Special thanks to RTE journalist Declan Dunn, author of Set at Random, the book that wouldn't lie down, and to Des Gunning and Jim Keeley. A previous version of the play was commissioned by the James Joyce Centre and presented online by About Face Theatre Company. Sound was by Gar Duffy and Damien Chanel. The United States versus Ulysses by Colin Murphy was produced by Kevin Brew. The series producer of RTE Drama on One is Kevin Reynolds. The play was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee. And on our website, you can now enjoy the James Joyce Collection, part of Drama on One's centenary celebration of the publication of Ulysses, including the 1982 RTE complete recording of Ulysses, Fritzen and Jerry O'Flaherty's blooming brilliant beginner's guide to the book Reading Ulysses, the RTE Player's 1980 production of Joyce's only extant play Exiles, all 15 stories from Dubliners, with explainers and analysis by Michael West, Annie Ryan and Patrick Dawson, as well as Stephen Ray's reading of The Dead. All of these can be enjoyed at rte.ie forward slash drama on one.